Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the jazz session. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode 461 for March 24th, 2016. The jazz session is member supported. You can become a member today for just five bucks a month at thejazzsession.com slash join. You can also support the show by starting your Amazon shopping at thejazzsession.com slash Amazon. Everything you buy helps the show at no additional cost to you. Thanks. On this episode, bassist Chris Lightcap from his 2015 album Epicenter. This is Nine South. excited it feels like it's uh, about a decade overdue i'm so excited to welcome chris lightcap to the show uh chris thanks so much for being here it's great to have you on the jazz session um hi jason thank you for having me appreciate it uh your band big mouth's most recent album epicenter which came out last year was on everybody's best of list and uh, was you know given all of the stars it's possible to give and uh, my understanding of this band is that when it started um, back in the late 90s, you weren't starting it with the thought that in 2016 we'd still be conversing about Big Mouth. Is that a fair statement? That's probably fair. I I just sort of started leading a band on a whim to see what would happen. And um, it was originally a quartet. It was just called the Chris Lightcap Quartet originally. <clears throat> and then I expanded. I expanded the group into a quintet a few years later and the second quartet record was called big mouth. And I decided that that was a good name for the band is a lot more interesting than the Chris Lightcap quintet. It's just too, too hard to, it took too long to say. And (laughs) so, yeah, so, and it just, it's, it's been, it's just gotten more and more fun over the years. And so if it's fun, I like to keep doing it and see keeping, um, I'd, I'd like to keep seeing where it takes us, and here we are. As the years have gone on and the band has continued to exist, does it allow you to take more risks as a composer and performer with this band? More risks? I don't, I don't really experience them as risk-taking. I mean, what, what I'm doing, I, I, don't, I don't think, oh, I shouldn't do this. I, that's never been something in my mind. Um, I, I just try to, I'm, I'm just trying to make the music sound good to me. That's enough of a challenge than, you know, that's enough of a challenge without worrying about what's going to get over or not get over with this segment or that segment or this person or that person. 
and um, I just try to, you know, it, it's enough of a challenge for me just to put it all together, together in a way that works from my end. And the main thing for, for me is just making sure that there's a nice balance between writing for my own taste and writing for what, what I think the band is going to enjoy playing and what, what I think is going to possibly challenge the band while also giving them something that they want to, that they want to do that might be a little more familiar, you know, writing that, that balance, that line between, you know, trying to push it into new areas and trying to find things that the band is really good at doing and, and, and tapping into the personalities of the group. Yeah, maybe my wording uh, was poorly chosen because I think what you've described there with that combination of challenge and familiarity is what I was thinking about. You know, that idea that there are there are ways to push because you know the players so well that and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that maybe wouldn't be there if you didn't have the level of familiarity that you have. Yeah, probably. I mean, the thing for me that really works, that that, that is really consistent throughout the whole thing is that the level of trust between all of us, and that's true of most bands that I like to play in people, people have um, a lot of trust for each other. That There's always this sense that you can try anything. Um, so, and, and in that respect, I guess it has been easier to take risks as they are as, as it, you know, in, if you want to look at it that way. Because, but it probably doesn't because it feels less risky to try, to, to try things. So I, I think it actually probably now that I think about it, it might be an apropos way of, of looking at it. For for me as a composer, one thing that I have done is uh, maybe it's it's not a, a risk taking thing, but I've felt more confidence to explore areas of writing that are maybe probably seem a little less traditional than the way I used to write for the group to a jazz group, less traditional to, to jazz writing. When I started with the quartet, you know, I was writing for two horns, bass and drums. And there was a certain way of approaching sort of playing heads and then solos and then a head again. And one thing that I've done more on the last two records is writing with the idea of just, saying anything goes you know, we might do that or we might just start with a one piece of material improvise on it and then another piece of material could come in i could write material that could be played that could be put in or not put in depending on what the players want to do including myself and um sort of expanding the palette that way and also exploring the studio more as an instrument um not being afraid to try overdubbing things if i want to layer parts not being limited to just having two saxophone parts all the time. Um, and that's something that I did more on, on Epicenter probably than I had before in terms of, you know, there's a couple songs where I just wanted a fuller sound. So I had Tony and Chris do two or three passes of improvising to create more of a different type of atmospheric effect. Like on the second track, um, White Horse, we did that. And um, I also had Craig... And, and myself actually play organ on that track in addition to Craig playing Wurlitzer and I played guitar as well as bass. So we did a lot of overdubbing on that song and it's a, it's a three minute song. <laughs> it wasn't like, um, you know, and, and that was one thing that I, that I just felt what I wanted to do from the beginning on that particular track. And I said, well, why not do it? It is, is it, 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 and a lot of, one could say that that's not really a, a jazz way of approaching recording, but I wasn't really concerned with, with that. 
So, um, it's, and that's, but that's been a lot of fun in terms of, uh, the evolution of, of how I'm approaching the music is, is exploring more of what we can do in the studio, both during the recording process and during the mixing process. As I listened to you describe that, um, I was kind of reminded of, uh, in another part of my life, I'm a poet, and uh, I started writing poetry the way, you know, most people do, like angsty poetry in high school that was all awful. And then um, (laughs) as I got older, I started doing this crazy thing, actually reading other people's poetry. And once I started doing that, I realized, oh, there are so many more ways to put a poem together. There are so many more ways to use the space on a page. There are so many more things you can do than I had ever considered doing before. And as I hear you talk about composing, I wonder, are there things that have come into your life or you know, people you listen to or uh, experiences you're having that are showing you some of these new ways? I don't, I don't mean to say that you, what you're doing is derivative in any way, but just that you've, you've seen or heard things and you think, oh, that was a way to approach this ensemble I just hadn't considered before. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if going back to the example of that particular track, it, I don't know if there's any particular reference point for me, but I, I've always listened to a pretty wide range of music, I guess. Um, I'm a big fan of not just a lot of different jazz composers and jazz albums and jazz artists, but um, I listen to a lot of 60s and 70s um, pop music and, and rock and classic rock music. West African music. I've always listened to a lot of, of, of classical music, and um, that that is a all those sounds are always swirling swirling around in my head. Um, and a, a track like that might be, if there is a, a point of reference for it, it's sort of an amalgam between a, listening probably to a lot of John Fahey, the uh, finger style. Yeah, I love John Fahey. Um, yeah, the, the uh, um, folk and uh, sort of ragtime. Avant, but then he went into all these other areas. Guitar player and and uh, and listened to a lot of classic sixties music like Phil Spector's records and Brian Wilson's productions, and um, of course bands like the Beatles and Zombies. All that's that that idea of, of being able to just combine things and having 
a bigger composite sound come out of other sounds without necessarily trying to orchestrate every single note. Um, combining instruments in ways where the harmonics are reacting to each other. That's kind of what I was going for on, on something like that. And, and that's something that I hear in, in a lot of that music and, and a lot of other music too. But that's just, those are some examples of things that I've checked out that have definitely come out more recently in my writing and the way I produce the records. Chris, can you talk about uh, why New York City and how New York City forms the center of a lot of the music on this record? When I was getting the idea for the music initially, I wanted, decided I would try to come up with a, an overarching theme, which I don't normally do. And I thought about different things that could be something to tie together as a unifying thread or, you know, or, or, or theme. And I just started to think about the, my journey to the city, which was in, and when I was writing it, it was, it was basically 20 years. It, it, it was my 20th anniversary of living in New York city. And I started thinking about how I thought about New York growing up, how I thought about it when I was in college and I was starting to become more and more serious about music and starting to more and more seriously think about the, um, having a career in music and especially playing jazz and the types of things that were bouncing around in my imagination about New York. And by the time I was a senior in, high, in, in college, I started coming down to the city to play gigs um, one or two times a month. And the first thing that I thought of was the journey from, I was going to school at Williams College in the Berkshires, and I would take this uh, trip, this three-hour trip, to, like, like I said, about twice a month, down the Taconic Parkway and hitting the, um, just, first of all, that's a really beautiful drive through the Berkshires. Yeah. I'm actually from and, Lenox. Oh, you're from, you're from Lenox? Yeah. So oh, cool. I, so I you have, know what I'm talking about. I have made that drive many times. <laughs> <tell> yep. <laughs> but, but, but it really, but, but there's there something about that drive that really inspired me. Um, and it's probably a very provincial way of looking at New York city from, you know, as a, as a kid from a small town who then went to another small town for college. Um, but you know, you can't help but get caught up in the rom- Maybe it's a romantic thing. Maybe it's just some, something else. But I, uh, as you get closer and closer to the city, I started to, you know, imagine I was just feeling this energy and, and I was, it was all built up in my anticipation and, and you start to notice that the landscape gets more and more, more suburban and then more and more urban. And you see, you go through the Bronx and then you start to see, um, the skyline and, and you hit the, the Henry Hudson highway. And, um, so that was sort of like the jumping off point. And that's why the first team is called nine South. Um, because that's the drive down, down that, that highway it's uh, route nine. And, um, I, so I started there and I just started thinking about all the different places in New York that have inspired me throughout my, 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 um, my time here from from being a young man and starting off just trying to meet musicians and and going out to see shows and and going to restaurants and and, and when I could afford to and, <laughs> and, and 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 galleries and and um, museums and um, then as I grew up and got married and started to have kids and uh, so there are a lot of places that tie into that, that sort of like are real focal points for me throughout the whole journey. Um, one of them definitely is Coney Island, 
which I just, which my my wife when we first started dating took me to for the first time back in the mid nineties. And then when I had kids, that became their favorite place to go. And we live in Brooklyn, and so and it's a short train ride away. So that the song "Still Well" is dedicated to Coney Island. And all the things about this about Coney Island that were that were there when I first visited it, it was a you know it's been cleaned up a lot in the last couple of years. But there's something very dirty yet beautiful, and and it ha- encapsulates everything about New York in its history and 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 what's great about you know the you know both the light and dark aspects of both the cultural and um, civic life of the city and you know all the from from the you know, all the freaks and that hang out in and outside the freak show out there um to uh the original astro land which has now been totally um cleaned up uh w- right next to the cyclone the famous roller coaster and all the incredible old rides that are still there there are architectural landmarks like the wonder wheel and um you know nathan's hot dogs it goes on and on <laughs> and and also the beautiful uh, subway stations that they have there. They're absolute architectural landmarks, especially the second to last stop um, uh, right near the, the aquarium. And so, you know, a, a place like that really could, you know, I, I could, I, you could just look at one little corner and just get, you know, a whole starting point for a piece of music. You know, and, I'm, um, I'm sorry, not to interrupt you, but I was just going to, just to no, add fine. in to this idea that, um, I, I used to live in Brooklyn too, and and when I did, I spent a lot of time at Coney Island. And one of the things, besides all the things you mentioned, which are very real, one of the things that I loved about going there was that, despite the fact that uh, New York and the boroughs are on islands, it is uh, or most of them are on islands. It is often very easy to forget that you're near the ocean. And I used to like to go to Coney Island just because you could look out and not see anything, and it you know there's this kind of this horizon that like clears your visual space in this really beautiful way that I always enjoyed. Absolutely. And that's, that's why it, that's absolutely why it is what it is. I think that's, that's the special thing about the location. And, um, you know, it was a serious tourist destination, you know, 50 to 60 years ago, and they still have all these old hotels that are now rooming houses. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's this, you look at it now and you think, Oh, this is a dirty beach. But at one time it was, you know, it, it was paradise, and it still is. It's just, it happens to be in New York City, and it happens to have the connotation that it has now. But it's still this gorgeous view from there. You can't beat it, and, and it, it looks just as beautiful as if you go out to Rockaway or Long Beach or any of the other much more uh, "quote unquote" respectable beaches in the city or in the in, in the surrounding area. Um, it's 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 an amazing place. It's and and um and I still love going there. I just took my kids there um, at the end of the summer. We and there, there are these uh, go karts that they just put in, and man, it, every time I go there, I, I, I kind of I get a I get I get excited. <laughs> it's, it's 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 a very it, it, I really get caught up in, in that place.
More from my interview with Chris Lightcap in a moment. But first, if you like what you hear, please consider becoming a member. Your contribution of five bucks a month helps me keep the hundreds of shows in the archive accessible and free for everybody. To become a member, visit thejazzsession.com slash join. You'll get free MP3s every month as a little thank you for your contribution. You can also support the show by starting your Amazon shopping at thejazzsession.com slash Amazon. Everything you buy helps the show at no additional cost to you. Thanks a lot. And now, back to my conversation with bassist Chris Lightcap. So with everything that you've just said, is there any way that you can you can take us through the process of turning all of that into a piece of music? Like how how clearly does the piece of music relate to, you know, any particular sights or sounds or scenes? Uh, is it just its mood informed? How do you, how do you go from all those things you think and feel about Coney Island to a piece of music? Well, I I at a certain point, I have to just write the music, and I can't be thinking consciously about a theme all the time necessarily. It was in the back of my mind, and again, I'd never written this way before. I never came up with a with a concept for the piece. And and to be honest with you, part of the part of the reason I did was because I was applying for a grant to do to, to write a piece, and and that was sort of the the bent of the grant was to have an overarching theme. And I thought. Part of, like, ten years ago, I would have said, "I don't need to do that." Well, I'm, that's stupid. But <laughs> I thought, well, maybe, I, maybe, maybe the reason I'm resisting it so much is because it's hard for me, and I need to expand my way of thinking about music and not be afraid to to think about it that way instead of just dealing with abstract sounds all the time. So a lot of the time, it was very just impressionistic. It wasn't, oh, this. It's not like any particular note represents any particular thing. Or place. I mean, I mean, it, 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 it's just a, 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 they're usually just impressions of the place, or or the, the, you know, it's not always necessarily a place. It's a, and some kind of entity. So, um, and for the with the example of uh, epicenter, which is sort of dedicated to the village vanguard. It's not some. It's it's not just about the the place, which is a is an amazing place, but by virtue of I think the history and there's a deep spirituality to that room that would certainly not be there. Did it not have the history that it has? And, um, and likewise, I, I, on the other sort of on the other end of the spectrum, I wrote down East as a dedication to, um, Max's Kansas city, which I never got to go to. It's just something that exists in my imagination, but all the great rock bands and, um, punk bands and, that played there from the sixties through the early eighties, I believe, or late seventies bands like the velvet underground and television and, um, big star and, um, the talking heads and, 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 and it's sort of like Max's Kansas city slash CBGBs. Um, and, um, and obviously there's a stylistic connection between that music and what I wrote. And, and that's, but that song was also sort of, pretty strongly derivative of the Velvet Underground, um, the song Waiting for the Man, just the sound of the piano on that song. Mm-hmm. 
so I took that that sound and that basic sort of elemental primitive rhythm that John Cale played on that song and I wrote a different set of chord changes and came up with this rhythmic motif for the uh, horns to play this bait this 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 that goes against the beat so um it still reflects my musical taste and things that I'm into in that respect. It also almost melds that with an effort, like my my love and appreciation of, of, of West African music. But it, um, you know, it it, uh, it had a more obvious stylistic connection to, to that music that I associate with that place. Sometimes I would just write something, like in the White Horse was something that I actually was expanded on, a, a sketch that I'd done from a long time before. And I called and I ascribed the meaning to it after it was done. I didn't know what that was going to be about. And then I thought, because of the guitar and the way the lines sort of interweave, it reminded me of, of writing <clears throat> and also reminded me of folk music. And um, the White Horse Tavern is a place where writers from across many generations would hang out. Famous writers like Dylan Thomas um, would would hang out. And um, it's a beautiful old bar in the West Village, which is still there. Yes, it certainly is. You're talking and, to a poet who has, of course, made a pilgrimage more of than course. once to the White Horse. Right. So. <laughs> so I <don't>, again, <laughs> you could tell me more about that place than I, than, than I could. And so that that seemed appropriate for that song. And, um, and, and you know, so and, and so there's there's several different ways that that the music touches on the inspiration behind it. This uh, you mentioned uh, you mentioned a list actually of a bunch of my favorite bands a few minutes ago, but uh, one of them was Velvet Underground, and uh, you talked about Max's Kansas City, which is no longer there. CBGB's is no longer there. Uh, the first place that the Velvet Underground ever played is now at Chipotle in the East Village, and um, this this record. Uh, ends um, with a Velvet Underground tune, and I wanted to ask you about that, about why you chose this one and uh, your approach to it. Okay, well, actually, my understanding, and I could be wrong here, is that the Velvet Underground's first gig was at, at, a, at a Summit in Summit, New Jersey at a high school. Cause, and the only reason I know that, the only reason I, I was told that is because a, a good friend of mine went to that school and he said, you know, the Velvet Underground played their first concert in some new, in my high school in Summit, New Jersey. Well, that's interesting because um, on the, um, there's this, uh, really great, uh, poetry, like a MP3 poetry tour of the Lower East Side and called, uh, Passing Stranger. And if you take it, one of the places it will take you by is this Chipotle. Some, I can't remember where in these village it is, yeah. but that used to be a that's German, so German social club. Um, oh, wow. And the Velvet oh, yeah, Underground I hear about that. played there, yeah. So, and in yeah. the tour, it says that that was their first gig. Now, I never did any independent research, so it's a hundred percent possible yeah. that they first played in Summit. But in any case, very early on in their lives, right? Uh, yeah. they played and, and in we don't place. have to. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, right now, some Velvet Underground fan is screaming at this podcast, telling us the correct answer of uh, where the we'll actual first gig was. Later. That's right. Um, so the. Um, all Tomorrow's Parties was, 
you know, it's it's on the very first Velvet Underground record with Nico, and Nico sings that song. I've always loved the song. I've always loved that whole record. But you know how it is with an album where you'll listen to uh, you'll listen to it all the way through, and one song one song will really resonate with you. And in my, in my case, I'll just end up listening to that one song over and over again for a while. And sometimes it takes me like several years to really get through a whole album. Not not to listen through a whole album, but to really sort of grasp a whole album because once I hear one song and it's something about the song really connects with me, I'll, I'll tend to listen to that one song over and over again. And sometimes it takes me a while to get to each one. In I'm so glad of, that you said that. Of, can I not to interrupt you again? But can I just say that you, I've mm-hmm. never heard anyone say that before. And like for example, it took me forever to get through Big Star's number one record because I got to the Ballad of El Gudo and I just put it on repeat and I listened to it for weeks, weeks and weeks and weeks. And that I, song destroys me. Oh my god! That Ballad th- of El Gudo is. I'm glad you said that because I mean, that is. Oh god, that is such a great. That whole record, but but again, like every every song is is about that good. I mean, exactly. But 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 once you get to that song, how can you not listen to it over and over? I again? I completely agree. So I, I just wanted and, to and, have some solidarity there with that idea of stopping at a yeah. song and going. Yeah. Um. So and I this is so this sounds so lame, but I literally I was at the gym, <laughs> and I that song came up on shuffle, and I'd heard the song before, but I just I had to stop for a second and just sit and I just sat there listening to that song over and over again. I stopped working out and I just sat there listening to it for about 20 minutes over and over again. And, um, something about her voice and the, uh, it's a really simple song. Obviously it's very, very simple building blocks, but there's this really interesting, uh, odd phrase length of the verses that happens. Um, I think it's a six bar phrase. I can't, I can't remember. I wrote it. Obviously I should know cause I wrote it out to the end of play, the five or six bar phrase that the verses have. And then this amazing release that happens when the chorus comes in and, um, or I don't even know if you can call it a chorus. It's a, it's, it's such a short form, but I, I immediately just heard her voice is right inside the tenor saxophone range. And I immediately could hear Tony and Chris playing that melody in unison and I think they had her voice doubled on it too, and um, and also the piano part. It's another great John Cale repetitive piano part. And there's no bass on the track. It's just just guitar. John Cale, who normally would play bass, was playing piano, and Lou and, and Sterling Morrison are, are just noodling around on guitar. <laughs> and it's just incredible. And it's got this beautiful '60s. I don't know if it's like a spring reverb or something, some, this big echo chamber sound to it. And, uh, I just, I thought this is, I, I said, this is a song I want to tuck away as a possible cover to do for big mouth. And that was maybe four or five years ago. And then right before, well, four or five years before the, we recorded it. And right before the night before the recording session, I said, Oh, that's right. I wanted to do that, that, that Velvet Underground song. And so I wrote it out and we just read through it. And that was the take that we used.
I didn't even tell them what to do. I said, just, just play it and, and you'll know. Just, just, let's just see what happens. And that's what the, and then the thing that Craig did at the end, where he kept playing the piano, I didn't tell him to do that. And that, to me, that makes the whole record work. <laughs> the way, the way he kept playing the piano at the end. And that's just a really great example of why it's so great to work with Craig Taborn. Because he, um, he's always thinking very compositionally. And it's never about showing off what he can do technically. It's always just about serving the music, but he always does it in such an incredible creative way, such a musical way, but he's also sort of pushing it at the same time. And the idea of him just holding over with that rhythm at the end really just made the whole thing work. Because I wasn't sure how we were going to end it. And so he figured it out, figured it out for me. For those of you who've been listening uh, to Chris talk about this record and uh, hearing the excerpts throughout the show and been thinking, boy, I'd love to see this band live, you have quite a few chances to do that uh, coming up in March and April. March 30th, they're in Santa Fe. The 31st, they're in Albuquerque. April 1st, they're in Denver. And then toward the end of April, the 20th, uh, they're at Chris's alma mater, uh, Williams College in the Berkshires. Uh, 21st at the Pioneer Valley Series and the 22nd at the Great Firehouse 12 in New Haven. Chris, when this band plays live, uh, do we hear the things on the record, but given more room to expand? Absolutely, and and we always play everything differently, and it's never it's it's absolutely never the same. <laughs> um, so you can come see us more than once, <laughs> even if we play the same songs. But the nice thing about Epicenter for me is that we had a, a lot of chance a lot of chances to perform the music live. And it gave them the chance, the music a chance to grow, and 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 it gave the, the band a chance to get familiar with it and take more risks, as it were, with it, and, and just be looser with it. And I'm 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 happy with a lot of times when when you record and you don't get a chance to play live first, it it people kind of haven't lost their inhibitions with it yet, and they're playing a little too carefully. And that's something that I, we were able to work out um, by getting to play it a lot out before we recorded it. Chris, before we uh, say goodbye to one another, can you say some more things about the people in this band and and why you chose them in particular? Yeah, sure. Um, on on tenor saxophones, I have Tony Malady and Chris Cheek, who've been playing with the well. Tony's been playing with the group since the beginning with the quartet, and Chris has been with the group for at least the past ten to twelve years. Um, the two of them are. are obviously two of my favorite tenor players and they have, they each have a very unique approach to, the, to their instrument and they're very different from each other. They have very different sounds, very different ways of improvising. And, um, they have a, but, and, and the nice thing is that they've, they've got a history together outside before they started working together in big mouth, they had already worked together in a bunch of other groups like Paul motions bands and, um, and Charlie Hayden's group and a couple other projects like I think Guillermo Klein and they have a really nice blend when they need to 
and they also can really play well opposing each other and, and everything in between. And they just have a really, like everyone else in the group, they have a really great desire to just make it work as a group. And it, they always put that in front of what they need to do as saxophone players. It's a joy to work with them. They just have a really nice collective approach. And on drums, uh, Gerald Cleaver, who I've been playing with also since the quartet started, and we played in many groups over the years together. Probably we've probably done about 15 records together at this point with all different bands, with, not just with my band, but with his band, with Craig Taborn's trio, with um, a record that Rob Brown did, about four records with Joe Morris's quartet. And he and I have, I, it's been a real joy and pleasure for me to connect with him and, and sort of develop a relationship relationship with him as a rhythm section. Um, he's a, uh, he's a drummer who can do everything that you want a drummer to do as a, as just sort of as a great timekeeper and he has a great sound and he gets a great sound out of the cymbal and the sound of his cymbal blends perfectly with the sound of my bass. So if we want to play more traditional swing type stuff, it's always, it always feels great. And he's from Detroit and he comes from that incredible Detroit tradition. His dad was a great drummer as well. And he came from the same generation as, um, you know, Paul Chambers and Kenny Burrell, his, his father. And he came up in that. And he's just also, he's creatively, musically fearless um, as an improviser. Um, he's always writing that line between making you feel comfortable and making me feel challenged. And uh, as a rhythm section, it's been really elucidating for me as a rhythm section player for me, because when I first started out, my, I remember thinking my number one goal was always just to find a drummer that I hook up with time wise. And that was it. And with him, it's, I've been able to expand my concept of what it is to really hook up with someone. It's not just about hooking up where you're playing the same notes at the same time. It's, it's about, just hooking up musically, hooking up sonically. And the, my concept of the beat has grown a lot through playing with him too. It, it's become a much wider thing. And he's really, you know, it's, I owe a lot to him. I've learned so much from, from playing with him over the years. And um, I'm just really lucky because it's a really good blend of personalities. Everyone gets along really well. And, and it's been really gratifying to have those kind of relationships start at a certain place that was already great. And then just see how they've grown over the years and get to do concerts and, and, and as we, we just did two shows in Europe over the summer in at Southfeld and, and Villa Saddle, these two really nice festival gigs. And uh, I looked out at the band and I thought, man, this is, I can't believe that we've been doing this for this long and that we've, we're getting to do gigs like this and, um, and how far it's, it's come. And I, I just really look forward to seeing where it goes in the future.
finally, Chris, can you talk about some of the other projects and people with whom you're involved? Sure. Um, well, Craig put together a quartet um, early last year with, well, maybe it started uh, maybe a year before that, but we did a, a, a tour. It's a quartet with Dave King and Chris Speed with me playing both electric and upright bass. And um, that that's a, an ongoing thing that I hope to do a lot more stuff with. And I think there's plans to record that band in, um, in May. I've been playing a lot, as I have been for many years, with Matt Wilson's quartet, which also includes um, Jeff Letter and Kirk Kanofsky. And um, we just did a record last year with, um, or maybe it was two years ago, with John Medeski. And we've been doing a lot of touring with that group since then. Um, both as a quartet and with John as a special guest, and that's been incredible because I'd never worked with John before. And um, I've been playing with Regina Carter's band on and off for the past 15 years, and she is uh, doing, finishing up touring her last record, which is called Southern Comfort, which in, also, in the band includes Marvin Sewell on guitar and Will Holzhauser and Alvester Garnett. And um, I'm doing a big three-week tour with her coming up in um, February and March. Um, and there's also plans to do an, another project with her. I recently got to do a concert with uh, Nelt Klein, who I'd never worked with before, and he and I really hit it off, and he um, asked me to play a couple nights of the stone with him. He's doing a residency in, uh, in August. So I'm really looking forward to playing with, to, to, to that. And I also have a, 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 an electric band that I've put together called Superette. It's um, with two guitarists, Jonathan Goldberger and Curtis Hasselbring on guitar. Curtis is best known as a tromb trombone player, but he's also a great guitar player. And Dan Reeser on drums, who I've known for a long time. Um, he's a great uh, drummer, not just in the jazz world, but um, he's one of the top rock drummers in New York City, and he plays in Roseanne Cash's band. He used to play in the band uh, Marcy Playground. And that band is sort of a, my own take on on surf music basically and sort of with my own stuff thrown in <laughs> and we play some of my music and some of Curtis's music and I hope to record that band soon and um, we're doing a gig in March that Jonathan can't make so I'm going to have Nels sub for Jonathan on it so I'm really that's going to be really fun hearing him play that music and yeah that's, there's a bunch of other things going on those are the things that come to mind well, the most mind-blowing part of all that was that Curtis Hasselbring plays guitar. I had no idea. Oh, yeah. He can play the, the heck out of the guitar. You, you can. You can <laughs> I mean, this is a podcast. There's no FCC. You can, you can... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the bejesus. Yeah, that's um, true. Yeah, no, he's, he's great. And, and, and as you know, he's a, probably know, he's a brilliant composer. He and I have a lot of the same... We, we have sort of similar tastes in the way we write music. Um, he actually does things that I wish I could do as well as he does. Like the, his ear for writing simple melodies across really great harmonic twists and turns is he's, he's just a master. And so I played in, in his bands a lot over the years and he's a, a good friend. We bonded a lot when we both had kids around the same time. And, um, he, uh, so he was a natural choice because I didn't want to have, someone in the band who was a straight up jazz guitar player at all and that's really what he, when he played guitar he was really just coming at it from a, a rock thing before he got into playing trombone and, and becoming a jazz trombone player which he's an amazing improviser of and uh, 
so having him in the band was the perfect choice, not just for that, for, but also for him to bring his incredible songs. So we do, like I said, about split it up between him and me in terms of our writing. And then we do some covers. We do a Link Ray song. We do a song, by, uh, a television song, Marquee Moon, and um, a bunch of more obscure things, like some Jerry Rafferty and some Neil Young, and a song by this guy, Skip Spence, who used to, he, I don't know if you've ever heard of him. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yes, so he was this weirdo from the psychedelic San Francisco scene, was in Moby Grape, and was the original drummer from Jefferson Airplane, and so we do one of the songs from his record, Or, which is this oddball record that he did, um, that he played all the instruments on, and and uh, it became this sort of cult, it, it, an underground cult classic. <laughs> <laughs> and so we, so we do we one of the songs from that, I discovered that record about 10 years ago, and uh, so it's it's just been really fun, it, it, just having another outlet where I get to play electric bass and bring a bunch of pedals and and um, just get to explore that side of my playing because that's something that I've that I've sort of done for the last 15 years. A, a lot of people don't realize that I still that I play. I started on electric bass and I still play electric bass um, when I can, and it's something that I still have a lot of fun doing. So it's good to have something that I can always do that in, even if I don't necessarily get called to do it as often as I'd like. My guest is bassist Chris Lightcap, and his uh, fabulous uh, recent album with his band Big Mouth is called Epicenter. Chris, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. I'm really glad we uh, had the chance to do it, and I thank you so much for being a guest on the Jazz Session. Thank you so much, Jason. It's been great to talk to you. That's music by Chris Lightcap from his album Epicenter. Thanks to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to this show. Find them online at respectsextet.com. Thanks to Dave Rabel for the show's logo. A note about uh, the Respect Sextet and thanking people. Josh Rutner was recently on the show, and he was talking about his album Rockabye Battleship. Well, Josh is a cool guy, and he's offered a special discount to Jazz Session listeners. All you have to do is go to joshrutner.com, Follow the links to buy Rockabye Battleship from Josh's Bandcamp page. When you get to the checkout, enter the promo code TJS for a discount on the album. So go to joshrutner.com, follow the links to buy Rockabye Battleship, and at checkout, enter the promo code TJS to get the album for a discounted price. Please consider supporting the Jazz Session with your membership. To learn more and to become a member, visit thejazzsession.com join. You can also support the show by starting your Amazon shopping at thejazzsession.com slash Amazon. Thanks. The Jazz Session will be back in two weeks with another episode. In the meantime, please support live music wherever and whenever you can. Then come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session.
Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.